Shabbat Shalom. All right. Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah. Bless the name of Yahuwah. We are in Romans, Romeo, chapter 15. Oh my goodness, getting close, getting close to the end of the Romans road. Hopefully it has been enlightening, it has been to me, for sure and for certain, getting the context. Let's just jump right into the text. When we, then, that are strong, ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good and edification. And even Mashiach, Messiah, please not himself, but... As it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached you, they fell upon me. Now, we have to be careful as we open up the text of chapter 15 not to fall into the value judgments of translators, specifically in context of verse 1. Oftentimes, you get the translators putting their own value judgments in on verse 1. Who are the weak? What are we talking about? Who are the weak? Some translators would have you like to believe that it's just the Jews. The Jews are the weak, or any person who upholds the laws of Moses. Well, they've got to be weak then, right? That's what they would have you think. Many translators, again, putting their value judgment on the text. But the Greek word here is ton adunaton, ton adunaton, the weak or powerless. The weak or powerless. And it speaks to those whose consciences, I like the word, seared. Their consciences are seared. They're sensitive in conscience. I would put myself in that category. I ha- I'm very sensitive in conscience when it comes to the things of Yahuwah. I am very sensitive in conscience because I personally, I live such a bad life that now I've been redeemed. I'm very sensitive because of the things that I've been exposed to. Because I was there, I'm very sensitive Other people that maybe didn't walk the way I did, praise Yah, they're maybe not as sensitive because they haven't seen the dark, dark side. So I am very seared in conscience, and I would put myself in this category. But I don't believe that I'm weak in the faith. I don't. I mean, I like to think, and I truly act, Bold and courageous. I fall like we all do, but I'm always ready and raring to get up. And I'm always thankful for the brother whose hand is there to help me. It's better that two walk together than a man alone. Because if one fall, his brother can help him up. I love to be in community. I love to be with you all. Because we need one another You were just sharing about brother who's sitting up in the woods every Shabbat all alone by himself. That's not a good thing. We need to be in community because we often will stumble, but we will never, ever stay down when we're in community. So I like to see, as we look into the Greek here, ton adunaton, the weak or powerless 
It speaks to those who are seared in the conscience. They're sensitive. It has more to do with how we actually react with one another within community, doesn't it? That we're sensitive to one another. We're very different. We come together. And the weak have less tolerance than the strong in areas of disputation. Now, in this context, the origins are, you know, where did the meat come from? Did it come from the markets and temples? And again, what are you doing on the fast days? Not the feast of Yahweh days, but those extra biblical fasts. Maybe like the ninth of Av. That's not a scriptural requirement, but a Jewish tradition. See myself, I am sensitive in conscience. I really do want to know the origin of where my meat comes from. I don't want to sit in a Chinese restaurant underneath an idol of a big stone Buddha and eat my Kung Pao chicken. I don't want to do that. I'm not comfortable with that. That bothers me because I've been around a lot of idolatry. I just cannot tolerate it. I'm sensitive to that. But... Other people may not see that. It's not a question of that I'm weak, but my conscience is seared in that specific example. The feast days. I'm a scripturalist. I want to keep the feast days of Yahuwah, but I'm not going to do Hanukkah, non-scriptural, Purim, non-scriptural. I don't fast on the ninth of Av. Um, I don't do those extra biblical Jewish fast days. I'm sensitive to not doing the traditions of men because I got sick of it being shoved down my throat when I was in the traditional religious system. So I'd rather just stick to what's in the scripture. If it's in the scripture, I'll do it. But I'm not doing the extra biblical stuff, even if it sounds good. Because that, to me, I'm really sensitive on. Because I've been led astray by the traditions of men before. And they may come and start from a good place. But in my opinion, they always end up leading you away from the scripture. So why add to what is already perfect, in my opinion? I'm real sensitive to that. So this is really, really helpful to us in community, I think. So as we continue, in summation, we all have a responsibility to one another within the faith to be sensitive to some that are in conscience seared and other people's sensitivities. One another we have to be sensitive to if we're going to build the community. If a brother comes in here and he's fasting because to him it's important to fast on the ninth of Av, then I'm not going to condemn him, but he shouldn't condemn me if I decide to eat on the ninth of Av, right? Right? Now, if I go and have dinner around somebody's house and I question the origins of their meat, then I hope that that doesn't offend them. I'm not trying to be rude, but I am sensitive and I want to know the origins of where my meat came from. Now, another brother may come here And he may eat meat and not be so concerned from the origins of where his meat come from. I'm not going to condemn him because we're all going to be eating clean animals according to the Torah, Leviticus 11. And then we are going to continue on as our consciences are seared. 
Now, that doesn't mean I compromise. And if somebody tries to bring in a shrimp barbie, I'm going to tackle them at the legs. Of course. I mean, we've got to stand up for what's right, okay? There's going to be no shrimp on my barbie. That's my Australian accent for you. <laughs> All right, let's continue on because we have to be careful not to get tripped up on the scriptural minutiae when there are far larger and more pressing issues. Like the Christ haters of verse 31. That is a larger and far more pressing issue that there are Christ haters, Mashiach haters in the world in the world, then and now, that is what we need to be careful of. So let's look now at verse 4. For all things which are written in the Tanakh were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Holy Scriptures, the Kitvei HaKadosh in the Hebrew, the Holy Scriptures, we have hope. In the Greek here, ton graphon. Ton graphon, it was without doubt, without doubt, is referring to the Old Testament and the law of Moses, isn't it? Without doubt. Look at the Greek. You can't take it anywhere else. Right here. Without doubt, we're talking about the Old Testament and the law of Moses. So the Old Testament is to be our foundation for learning. That's what gives us hope. It gives us patience. It gives us comfort. The only, the only reason that we're to place our hope in Yahushua is because he is the promised one prophesied about in the law of Moses. And we know that for sure and for certain. He is the one that was prophesied about in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. No mature believer in their right mind is going to criticize the law when the law sets the foundation on which Messiah stands. Right? It's called meat and maturity instead of weak and on the milk. Get off the teat and get on the meat. All right. My goodness. What did you put in this? Verse 5. Now the Elohim of patience and comfort grant you the ability to regard one another with equal worth according to Mashiach Yahusha, Messiah Yahusha, that you may with one mind and with one voice. In the Hebrew here, this is the kol echad. The kol echad. And those of us that have got the Hebraic mind, boom. Where does my mind go back to when I hear that? This is, you've got to understand, this is Rav Sholiak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul, a student of Gamliel. And when he puts something down on paper, he puts it down in a letter, and his words are going to trigger those who grew up, he's already set the stage, in the Tanakh, in the law of Moses, the Torah. And when he uses a particular word, the kol echad, the one voice, their mind is going to go right back to where? Where is it going to go back to? Listen, 
the kol echad, the one voice, even the Abba of our Savior, the Father of our Savior, Yahushua the Messiah. You just can't miss it. You can't miss that Paul is deliberately right here quoting from the book of the covenant as a reference right here to remind the Romans of the Kol Echad, the one voice. What is the one voice? It's the one voice of the Malkitzedic priesthood that Paul is now proclaiming. That they're to do all the words which who? Which the Malkitzedic Yahushua, the high priest, has spoken. Because their mind is going to go right back, turn with me, to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. That's the origin of the Kolechad. Shemot, Exodus 24, verse 3. So Moses, Moshe, came and told the people... All the words of Yahweh. And Paul is saying to the Romans, Kol Echad, you've come to the mountain. You've got to do. Do all the words of the Kol Echad that was nailed to the tree and has resurrected. What happened then is happening now. Well, they rebelled. Don't rebel from this message. It's the one voice calling, coming out right now to all nations, all tribes and the sojourner. This is the context. And this is the power punch of Romans 15. This is him, culmination now, of all of those pages before in his letter. He's now coming to the end of his letter and he is wrapping up. This is powerful. He's had this hand delivered. And now he has got to get his point across because his time is running short. So Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahuwah as well as all the ordinance. And all the people answered with, there's our linguistic connection, had one voice and said, all the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And he took the book of the covenant, context, and read it in all the hearing of the people. And again, they all said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and obey. That's powerful. That's what Paul is now communicating to his audience. Now look at verse 7, back into our text of Romans chapter 15. Therefore, be friendly and bear one another's burdens, as Messiah also brought us close to the Tifereth, the glory, the Tifereth in the Hebrew, the glory of Yahuwah. So now he's building on his Exodus 24 verse 3 theme, isn't he? And you're already getting the connections. They just come and come and come. Once you get that Malkitzedic Torah mindset, it's all right there. Because where on earth do you find in the Tanakh that the people speak in a kolechad, a one voice, and then they're brought close to the glory of Yahuwah? 
It's all in the same place. You just have to go to a few more verses down. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moshe and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They saw the Elohim of Israel, and under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the very heavens. They witnessed the very glory Tifereth of Yahweh. Is this what Paul's talking about? Or am I making this up totally out of context? See, we have been looking at the Bible out of context. We've had a Greco-Roman mindset divorced from the mountain. And now we are coming back. It is everywhere. It's everywhere. And it is not tradition. It's not my opinion. It is solid, and you don't have to go outside of the word and the language. And that is the safest place to be. You literally take the words and you connect them back to their origin because you build from the foundation of the Torah. You thread the thread through to the Nevim, the prophets, the Ketuvim, the writing, and then into the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, and you have a perfect tapestry, the cloak, which is seamless without tear, carried upon the shoulders and the government of Yahusha, that you all now are under his robe of righteousness. That's the call. You are the people. This is the generation. And we have much work to do. We have much work to do. And it's in your workplace. It's in your home. It's in your community. Because you are the kol echad. And your one voice can change a life. Just a word can, can bring somebody into a cold sweat and tears to their eyes. Realize the power of the kol echad. It's the still small voice that speaks within you when you speak your testimony and the word that is within you. Gevurah, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. It is in you, within you. Powerful. Let's look at verse 8 of Romans chapter 15. Now I say that Yahushua the Messiah was an Eved, a servant to Israel for the truth of Yahuwah, to confirm the promises made to our fathers. So in context, Paul is without doubt, without doubt, he is proclaiming the Melchizedek promises. Look at it. The promises that were made to our father at the mountain when they were there with the one voice and they witnessed the Tifereth, the glory of Yahuwah. Those are the promises that were made to our father. Verse 8. Now Paul is proclaiming that to the community in exile. Our fathers have obtained what the fathers tried to obtain. They obtained, in fact, but then they squandered it at the golden calf. You now, by obeying the one voice of Yahushua from the mountain, you now obtain what the fathers obtained. Now you don't squander it with your idolatry because we know what happened before. We never want to happen again. Walk in righteousness. If you love me, Keep my commandments. 
If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the voice of Yahushua. I know that your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It is not what is in your heart. Well, in my heart, I'm just doing it unto the Lord. No, you cannot trust your heart. The heart of man will lead you astray. Everybody that does right in their own eyes, like in the days of the judges, we don't want that. When there was no king over Israel, we have a king, and his name is Yahushua the Messiah. So we're to keep the book of the covenant Torah in context, relying on the Tanakh for our guidance, the Old Testament for our guidance, eating kosher, keeping the Sabbath, going to the feasts of Yahweh, because now that we're in covenant with Messiah, we're standing in one voice and we are witnessing his glory from the mountain because you are the Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. Right there. You are the Israel of Elohim. Look at verse 9 of our scriptures. And that the nations might all esteem Yahuwah for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess you among the nations, and I will sing to your great name. Of course, he's quoting Psalm 18, verse 49 there. Now verse 10. And again he says rejoice in the Hebrew gilah. Rejoice you nations with the people. Now this is a quote from the Septuagint. I like it best. Of Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 43. What happened? Context, Septuagint, Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. Remember that we're pulling from the mountain. This is after the golden calf breach. What does Yahuwah do? He extracts vengeance, vengeance upon Israel. And the song that Paul is quoting from here, the song is a witness against Israel for breaking the book of the covenant. But ultimately, Yahushua will atone for the people of the land and he will usher in the Malkit Zedek reign. I'm not making this stuff up, people. It's, I mean, this is, it's just like I have a script for the Malkit Zedek priesthood. And it's right here. And I really do. And our detractors are those that are still have a Greco-Roman mindset of the Levitical hierarchy and they've dressed it up with a, some Torah flowers. But they're really not going back and sticking to the scripture. There's Talmud, Mishnah and everything outside of the Bible to lead you up to a Zionistic hill of slaughter. And we don't want that. We do not want that. It's been a long, hard road. It's been a long, hard road with many turns and many tales. We've been ultra-Orthodox zealots, and there's nothing wrong with that. Ultra-Messianics, that was all part of the journey. But now we come back to the simplicity of Messiah, the Torah, the feasts, Shabbats, and festivals, and the righteousness of His Word. And we cast off the traditions of men, whether they're Jewish whether they're Christian, Jehovah Witness, we just want the word of Yahuwah unadulterated. Give it to me. Let's stand on it. Because I don't trust the words of men. I trust the kolechad of Messiah, the one voice. That's the place to be. 
That's the only place to be at this stage in my life and maturity. So now, let's now look at that one voice, and we see in verse 10, as the quotation of Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, talks about Yahushua coming in and doing the ultimate work of redemption. Verse 11. And again, Hallel, the Master Yahuwah, all you nations, and Lord him, all you people. That, of course, a quotation from Psalm 117. And verse 12. And again, Yeshayahu, the prophet Isaiah says, There shall be a root out of Yeshay, and he shall raise to reign over the nations. In him shall the nations trust. And of course, this is, I like the quotation again, from the Septuagint, the Septuagint of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. This is quoting, but... You've got to watch out for the Masoretic edit, because in the Septuagint, which, of course, he's going back to in the Septuagint, it says, to raise up by bringing back to life. Of course, the Masoretes couldn't have any of that, could they? So that is detracted out of the text, and they hide the fact that Yahushua's Malkizedic reign is innately connected to his sacrifice and subsequent raising up. You have got to watch the Masoretic edits. Over 134 times in the Masoretic text, they remove the total witness of Yahushua. And it's a willful, defiant, anti-missionary tactic. I love the Septuagint because you'll notice that the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, is quoting from the Hebrew that the Septuagint was translated from. That's undisputable. So why go back to a Masoretic text that is far newer when you can go back to something that pulls from a translation that is far far older. It's way more reliable, and you don't have the anti-missionary. Remember, he told us we've got to be careful of those ones that are coming out against us in verse 31, and we're going to get to that because they're the ones that have changed the text, the Masorites. Verse 13 now. Now to the Elohim of hope, Tikva, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in your hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my Israelite brothers, my brothers, that you also are full of much good, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, verse 15, brothers, I have written more boldly, partially to remind you, because of the unmerited favor, the grace that is given to me by Yahuwah. Now let's focus in on verse 16 here. That I should be the letorgus, letorgus in the Greek. Now, let's see what your translations say. Rob, what does yours say right there? Verse 16. That I should be a what? What does it say? Servant. Give me something else. Minister. King James, New King James. Minister is the most popular translation. And there, what else do we have? 
We have servant. We have minister. Anybody else? Verse 16. It's the kicker. Huh? Ah, what translation are you using? In... Oh, no, no, but what does the King James Version say? You're doing a, you're doing a Hebraic... Um, bishop, servant, okay. Well, let's dig into it, because what we've got in the Greek, here's the kicker, is the liturgus, that I should be the priest of Yahushua. Yahushua the Messiah to the nations. So Paul is proclaiming here that he is a what? A priest. Because the Greek word here, liturgus, has been hidden to us in the translation as a minister. But it is one who ministers in context in the service of the temple. And who was that? Was that a minister? No, it was a Cohen. It was a priest. So Paul is proclaiming to the Romans that he is a priest. That he is a priest because you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation under the Malkitetic anointing of Yahushua. That you are a liturgist, a priest of Yahushua the Messiah to the nations serving in the gospel of Yahuwah. That the offerings of the nations, the teruma, if you will, the offering, the tithe of the nations might be acceptable being set apart by the Holy Spirit. So the nations are now going to be offered up as a first fruit tithe unto Yahuwah because his priests are going to go out into the nations and collect in the tithe. You're to go and collect in the tithe, the first fruits. So the nations are going to become the first fruit tithes that you're going to bring in to his temple. And you are the temple of the living Elohim. You are not ministers. You are koanim, priests in the Greek. The Greek word here is liturgos. There is a huge, listen, there is a huge priestly source text, witness, and theme that is often overlooked. I would say defiantly and deliberately overlooked here. A theme that Paul is heavily reliant upon. Liturgus in verse 16 is used in the Old Testament for priestly service in the temple. Isaiah 61 verse 6 in the Septuagint. Um, Sirach 7 verse 30. Even Hebrews, yes, brother John, even Hebrews Chapter 8, verse 2, uses this word, liturgus, minister of the sanctuary, no, priest of the sanctuary, that then sets the context up for the detractors who like to rip out Hebrews 8, 6, totally out of context of verse 2. You see, as we dig in deeper, you start to see the folly of those that deny the Malkizedic priesthood of Yahushua and that you are a kingdom of priests today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. Because notice how the Levitical hierarchy violates the language and text 
of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 2 when they take Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4 out of context and say, well, you can't be priests. And Yahushua can't be a priest if he were here on earth. How, have, how many of you have heard that nonsense? How many of you have heard that? That's the kind of stuff that they would try and slide by you when you were sitting in the pews. But try and pass you off. Just try and pass you off so you continue to listen to the propaganda. But anybody who's doing their due diligence will back up and look at the context, the language, and go deeper. And we can see in verse 2, we have that word that is used for priest, liturgus, that sets the context that tells us now there is no doubt, there is no doubt that Paul was acting and officiating as a priest. And the kicker is the redeemed nations are the special teruma offering to Yahuwah, meaning proclaiming the true Malkitzedic gospel to the nations is our thanksgiving offering, offering to Yahuwah. That's what it is. How many lepers went back and said thank you? How many? You bunch of lepers. Go back and say thank you. <laughs> Try that one out in the world. How are you, you old leper? No, you don't want to say that. But we are leprous, are we not? But we have been healed. Some of you are more leprous than others. But you've all been healed. Praise Yahuwah for that. Of course, Paul is quoting. Where's, where's he pulling from? He's not quoting, but he's actually pulling from. Look at the text. He's pulling from Isaiah. I think we should turn there because he is pulling from Isaiah chapter 66. Let's turn there because this is very important. Isaiah 66. Keep a finger in Romans chapter 15. Go to Isaiah 66 because this is the source that he's pulling all of his information from. Remember, you are now priests that are going to go out to the nations because the nations are that thanksgiving offering that you're going to bring in as a thanksgiving offering to Yahweh. And where is he pulling from? Isaiah chapter 66, verse 18. Let's begin there and let's see what he has to say. I love the word of Yahweh. I didn't teach last week and you can tell I missed it, can't you? My goodness. For I know, I knowing their works and their thoughts shall come. And I will gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and they shall see my glory. So I'm totally in context with what we've been talking about to the Romans in the 15th chapter. And I will put an oat, a sign on them. And I will send some of them as survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, pull Lud and draw the bow to Tuval and Yavan to 
to the coastlands far off. So Paul is actually on this missionary journey to these lands, to the coastlands far off, that have not heard of my fame, neither have they seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles, the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers as an offering to Yahweh out of all nations." The Hebrew word there then is goy. Nations is goy, that their goy, your goyim, the goyim are going to be the thanksgiving offering that is gathered up by the Malkitzedic priests in the last generations and brought as a thanksgiving offering to Yahuwah. Because the goyim, they were really in the dirt, in the mire and the clay. And when they repent and turn, their faith is authentic. They're not interested in the traditions of men. They're not interested in the Talmud, the Mishnah, and all that Babylonian hierarchy and Levitical bull. They want to come. And it really was. They would slaughter a lot of bulls. I mean, they really want to come into the true faith. And once they've got it, they have got it. They're going to be truly authentic converts, which is what you and I are. I'm not messing around. I was in the death, in the dark, and now I'm in the light. I will never set. Now my hand is set to the plow. I'm not looking back. There's nothing to fear, but we go forward. Look at verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 66. And they shall bring all your brothers for an offering to Yahuwah out of the nations, goy upon horses and on Merkavot, chariots and on litters and upon wagons, Volkswagens, and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says Yahuwah, as the children of Israel bring a offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahuwah, mingled, the Hebrew word here now in verse 21 is very important, it is lakak, lakak, and it means um, it's to be mingled among them, la koanim, la levaim, says Yahuwah, lakak, Kohen Levi Amar Yahuwah is how it is written in the Hebrew. And it's very important because the translators deliberately want to hide how it was written in the Hebrew. Because the opening of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says, There's no earthly temple that contain, can contain Yahuwah. And it is now balanced with its conclusions, the heavens and the earth, a new creation by Yahuwah. This is a visionary temple, and it is a place of what? Universal worship. It's a place of universal worship. We know, we know the priesthood under Malkitzedek is very different from what was under the law, the book of the law. For under the law, the book of the law, one family, Aaronic, from one tribe, Levi, was exclusively limited and admitted to the priesthood. And the Gentiles, as unclean, were so far from having it that their power their power to discharge that priesthood that they were forbidden to enter the temple. Right? But here, 
here in the vision of the future of redemption, Isaiah 66, we find that the Gentiles, those from the nations, are elevated by Yahweh to the highest honor. Now unclean and polluted nations are reckoned to be a holy people just as in Exodus chapter 19. All are admitted inside. There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all under the kolechead, one voice admitted inside, verse 19, this then must be speaking after Messianic Reformation, when the Aaronic priesthood would change and cease. After Reformation, the resurrection of Messiah, the Aaronic priesthood would change, be transferred over to the Malkitzedic and cease. Oh, that's so hard for people to accept. Because under the book of the law, the Aaronic priesthood didn't admit Gentiles or any other tribe but Levi. How can you reconcile this text with the truth of the Malkitzedic revelation? In Isaiah 66, we find non-Israelites in priestly service unseen since the mixed multitude of Exodus chapter 12. At the book of the covenant mountain of Exodus Shemot chapter 19. In the book of the law reality. In the book of the law reality. None. None but those from the tribe of Levi could be taken into in a literal sense. Correct? Correct. But here. Gentiles are said to be taken in as such. So it can't be a literal Book of the law interpretation after the resurrection of Yahushua. It literally cannot be a book of the law interpretation after the resurrection of Yahushua. It has to be a literal book of the covenant reality. That is the royal Torah reality after Messianic Reformation. And as such, it's talking about the Gentiles coming into the temple. All your brethren, Isaiah 66 verse 20, all means all. All tribes together as priests, as in Exodus chapter 19. Mingled, the Hebrew word there, lachak, verse 21. You're mingled with the Levites, a tribe. You're mingled with the Levites, a tribe, all as one in Messiah. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And then in verse 21 of Isaiah 66, and from them likewise I will take some, la koanim, la levaim, said Yahweh. You have to be careful of the Masoretic text there. You really do. Because there is no conjunction. I am jacked up. Sorry, I am just... But it's exciting to me. Are you excited about this? This is huge to me. When I was reading this this week and last week, and I was sharing with my wife last Shabbat, and I was like, she's like, you're not going to teach that, are you? 
I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. She's like, no way. You're on. I was like, yes, yes. It's really in the scriptures. We haven't got to that bit yet, but I'm going to get there. <laughs> but there is no conjunction and in the text. You've got to watch for the Masoretic edit. It doesn't say like the King James Version would have you think, and I will also take some of them. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say for priests and for Levites. It doesn't say that in the text. That would be la koanim ule levaim. And it doesn't say that. Which does not appear in the text, but it has been added by the Masoretic scribes. And this is what the Messianic movement has just fallen headlong into. In their zeal to be Hebraic and Torah, they've gone headlong into the Masoretic Levitical corruption. And the next thing you know, it's just Jewish. What's next? Animal sacrifices. Of course it's next. And they'll be charging you money for it too. You know they will. Follow the money. (laughs) Really. I mean, it's that easy. Wake up. And it pisses me off. I mean, I hate to use that word, but it does because I've seen it. And I've had those private conversations that you guys haven't had with the leaders. And come on. Wake up. Follow the money. It all tries to come across as holier than thou. But at the end of the day, you've got to sign up, you've got to subscribe, you've got to put your PayPal in, you've got to put this to get this, you've got to buy that, you've got to buy it. It's all business. You've got to set up your marketplace after the Shabbat. You've got to have your conference. Fi- They're not making tents. They're not out there working a job. It's important that we see the days that are pressing upon us. We don't have time to mess around with the foolishness, the foolishness of the religious traditions of men, the Levitical hierarchy, all of those Talmudic Torah traditions that have come in and disrupted us in our call and zealotry for the law of Moses, the feasts, the festivals, Shabbat, the purity of it, it got corrupted by the Zionists that infiltrated amongst us. But now we're awakening to the true Zion, which is what? The messianic revelation of Yahushua bringing back through his priests, those from the nations to biblical Zion, biblical Israel with all 12 tribes, not one tribe, but all 12 tribes where there is neither male or female, slave or free, but you are all one, goyim even, goy, from the nations, 
Not a derogatory word, but you are the Goy Gadal. You are that great nation called in these days. Isaiah is a visionary. He envisions the mingling of the Gentiles together, I'll admit it, together with the Levite peoples. But you're together. They're not on a platform looking down at you like you don't know anything. Talking down to you with all the sycophants around them. No. This is reality where we are together, all one together, one peoples with the Levites as one, those who always assisted. The Levites always assisted, but now we're all as one. They come in equality before Yahweh, and this can only be a return to the Malkitzedic reality with the nations joining the priests in Exodus chapter 19. Verse 16 of Romans demonstrates undisputedly undisputably that Paul saw himself as a priest after the order of Melchizedek and that he was fulfilling the commission of Isaiah in bringing in the offering, the teruma, the thanksgiving offering which is those in the nations, the Gentiles from the nations because he's going to bring them into the house of Yah. Is that really what priests are all about? That is, do you think the Father's heart is truly about priests bringing in sheep, bulls, goats to his house, slaughtering them? Or do you think it is about him sending out priests to go to the nations to slaughter sin in the nation's lives and bring those from the nations who were dead in sin, raise them up through his son and bring them in as an offering under his priesthood, whether you are a male, female, black, white, Gentile, Levite, you're all one, nobody's above another, you are all the least and you're brought in to become the greatest thanksgiving offering unto you. Is that the Father's heart? Is that pure and undefiled religion that we should be preaching? Or should we be doing all of that other nonsense that I got caught up in? But he has used it now for me to come boldly before you and say, don't go where I went. I've seen it. I've gone in the inner rooms and seen what's going on. Don't go there. I've been in the church. I've been in the Torah messianic movement. I've come through it all by his grace and mercy because he threw me down on the floor, literally in tears, and then brought me up. He said, I can turn it around for you if you'll let it go. I'll take you down to nothing. And if you follow me, just like Paul, I can use that so you can speak and show people. I am glad I spent over 10 years in the Messianic movement. I'm glad because now I have a stronger witness. A stronger witness because I've seen so much. I'm glad that I spent all those years in the church. I am so glad that I was ministering in the church and I don't begrudge those days whatsoever. And I'm sad to say, at great cost, I'm even glad that I got raised up out in the nations because it has made me who I am today. And as hard as it was to be without Yah all those years, my latter years, 
are way greater than my former. That should be our testimony, should it not? Let's continue on. Before I start crying before you guys. Get emotional. It's hot up here. Or is it just me? Okay, all right. Crying out loud. But verse 16, in all seriousness, it does demonstrate that Paul undoubtedly, undoubtedly, he saw himself as a priest after the order of Malkitzedek. Because eschatology was bursting forth into salvation history then and now. And now. How much more so now, in fact? I mean, my goodness, the future realities of the messianic kingdom are breaking forth into this present age that we live in. Even through this ministry, as small and as humble as we are, even through this ministry and the technology and the servants that he's raised up, that we can reach the nations is huge. Is huge. Who would have ever thought it? The messianic kingdom isn't just some exclusive future reality. It's bursting forth upon our seams right now. Look at verse 17 of Romans chapter 15. I have therefore a cause for boasting through Yahushua the Messiah in those things that pertain to Yahuwah. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things that Messiah has not done through me. To make the nations obedient by word and demands, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the holy, holy Ruach, the Ruach of Yahweh, so that from Jerusalem and all around Arkinium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Messiah. Verse 20. Yes, so I have strived to proclaim the gospel, not where Messiah was already named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard, they are the ones that shall understand. For verse 22 says, For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you? But now, having no more a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I take my journey into Sephard, I will come to you. Verse 24, whenever I take my journey into Sephard, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and that you will escort me there after I have more or less Fully enjoyed my visit with you. And this is where I depart into a journey. I am actually going to England tomorrow. So I think maybe I'm just like rethinking about stuff. Stuff. Yeah, stuff. So anyway, at this point... This is fun, but I, I really want to share this with you. Because why has, why has the Roman church hidden the final journeys of Paul in the history records? That's what I, that's what I want to know. You know what I mean? Man, I would love to dig around under those catacombs and archives, right? I mean, you know it's full of Hebrew scriptures, right? 
I mean, why is it that the Roman church has hidden the final journeys of Paul from the history records? Because the historian Eusebius, he says this, Eusebius, excuse me, he says this in his third book of evangelical demonstrations in chapter 7. He says, and he admits that the apostles, quote, they passed over to those which are called the British Isles. Again, he wrote, some of the apostles preached the gospel in the British Isles. This is the historian Eusebius. And he says this from chapter 7 of his book, Evangelical Demonstrations. Some of the apostles preached the gospel in the British Isles. Now, Britam means what? Brit, covenant, am, people, people of the covenant. Okay? So let's just think about I'm not preaching British Israelitism. Okay, so now we can continue. Always got to watch out for the Englishman that starts to venture down these roads. I've already clarified this is about all peoples, all nations. This is not British Israelitism. But what about the 29th chapter of the book of Acts? Let's turn to Acts chapter 29. Put your hand up when you get there. Acts chapter 29, put your hand up when you get there. All right, I'll see you next Shabbat. You're not going to get there unless you've got a really good scriptures before you. Do you go, are you there? Oh, are you there? Oh, okay, I thought, who is really there? We got, ah, the holy brothers in the back. What translation are you using? Okay, we got, okay. Anyway, let's go to Acts chapter 29. You'd have to go from the Sony manuscript. The Sony manuscript. Sometime in the late 1700s, if you're not familiar with the Sony manuscript, and sometime before 1800, C.S. Sony published his copy of Sonny's travels in Turkey and Greece. See, Sonny was traveling around. And what happened is interleaved within a copy of the manuscript found at the archives of Constantinople, he presented to him was something that was presented to him by the Sultan Abdul Ahmed, what the sultan presented Sonny interleaved amongst that was the manuscript of the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. So it was published and translated into English sometime late in 1799. And it's available and has been available for some time and it was available at the earliest in about 18. Now, if this manuscript had been allowed to circulate before the curse of dispersion was lifted, think about it. Remember the curse that was put in in Leviticus 26? If this manuscript was allowed to circulate before the curse of the book of the law of Leviticus 26 was lifted, 
then the identity of those Gentiles or Ephraim in the nations and the true church would have been revealed prematurely. So I believe that is why it wasn't revealed until this day, until this age. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 29, verse 1 from the Sony manuscript. And Paul, full of blessings, oh, this is exciting. And Paul, full of the blessings of Messiah and abounding in spirit, departed out of Rome, determining to go into Spain. For he had a long time proposed to journey thitherward. Oh, I like that. Thitherward, and was minded also to go from thence to Britain. Paul had heard in Phoenicia that certain of the children of Israel, about the time of the Assyrian captivity, had escaped by sea to Barat Anat. Now, Barat Anat was considered by 17th century scholars to be the ancient Phoenician name for Britain in Old English known as the Tin Islands. I come from the Tin Islands. From the tin, going back to Acts chapter 29, verse 6. And Paul preached mightily in Spain, and great multitudes believed and were converted, for they perceived he was an apostle sent from God. He, Paul, departed out of Sephard, Spain, and Paul and his company, finding a ship in Amorica, sailing for Barat Anat, the British Isles, the Tin Islands... And they, passing along the south coast, they reached a port called Raffinus. They reached a port called Raffinus. This is the Roman name for Sandwich Kent. And you thought Sandwich was just a nice lunch. No, this is the Roman name for Sandwich Kent. In Saxon times, there was still standing in Sandwich an old house called the House of the Apostles. In Saxon times, it was known as the House of the Apostles in Sandwich, Kent, or what was called then by the Romans, the port city of Raphinus. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 29. Now, when it was voiced abroad that the apostles had landed on their coast... Great multitudes and the inhabitants met them, and they treated Paul courteously, and he entered in at the east gate of their city, and he lodged in the house of a Hebrew and one of his own nation. So the Hebrews, those of Ephraim, had already landed in the Tin Islands. On the morrow, he came and stood on Mount Lud. I'm going to be there. On Mount Lud, and the people thronged the gate and assembled on the Broadway, and he preached Messiah to them. And you wonder why they named it St. Paul's Cathedral, because of course that is Mount Lud, Ludgate Hill, or the Broadway where St. Paul's Cathedral stands in London. How about that? This is amazing stuff. You see, if the church in Rome had let the migrations of Paul be known, then they would have lost their stranglehold on identity and thereby they would have lost their power, wouldn't they? Think about it. Because the identity and whereabouts of Israel and the true church would have been revealed for all to know. 
You see, it's part of Yahweh's plan that the house of Israel should lose its identity and think itself a bunch of pagan Gentiles until the time of reformation when the seed would come to proclaim this Malkitzedic message, raise up priests in these days to go out and harvest the nations to bring them in as a thanksgiving offering. One people, no Levitical hierarchy, this day, this time, this now is the revelation. You are the people. This is it. It's all part of the identity of Israel. Paul, as you do, he lived in dangerous times. And you, being proclaimers of this message, you live in dangerous times too. The apostles were under threat, constant threat of assassin squads. Look what it says in 3 John chapter 1, verse 13. You don't have to turn there, I'll quote it to you. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. Why? Because he was about to get taken out by a bunch of assassin squads that were coming down upon him. He didn't have time. That's my interpretation anyway. It's legit. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 29. But now I go to Jerusalem to serve the Israelite saints, for it has pleased them from... Oh, sorry, I'm back in, I'm, I'm back in my um, text of Romans, am I? Hang on a minute, where am I? Yes, I'm back in my text of Romans, sorry. I got, I, I got it all wrapped together there. But look at the power of Acts chapter 29. The point being that it's all part of Paul's methodology. He was going out to the nations. He was going to sail to Spain, Sephard. We know that he did accomplish that. Through Acts chapter 29, the Sony manuscript, he didn't only just land in Spain, he actually made it to the Tin Islands, Britam, the people of the covenant, and he pursued further setting up a house in Sandwich, Kent, the house of the apostles, And then later up on Ludgate Hill, where we now have St. Paul's Cathedral. Back to our text of Romans chapter 15, verse 25. But now I go to Jerusalem to serve the Israelite saints. For it has pleased them from Macedonia and Achaia to give a teruma for the poor. An offering for the poor. The people were called the poor of the way. Israelite saints who are at Jerusalem. You see, this is powerful. John reveals, actually, in his letter, I quoted to you third John there, but John does actually reveal in his letter a pagan conspiracy. In third John, there was a pagan conspiracy. It was a diabolical attempt, in fact, by Simon Magnus. Remember Simon Magnus from the book of Acts? It was a diabolical attempt from Simon Magnus and his false apostles to seize the name of Christ. Is that what the Roman Catholic Church did in fact do? The apostles, the men, the followers of Simon Magnus and his false apostles attempted to seize the name of Christ, take over the true apostleship and gain control of the true Nazarene, Ebionite, Essene sect of the poor, masquerading it as Christianity in all of its variant antinomian forms. 
Simon Magnus. But what about Shimon Kepha? Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter. What about him? The Greek historian, in fact, Metapirates, reports that Peter was a long time in Britain where he converted many nations to the faith. That would be in line with Romans 15. That's page 45 of the Caves of Antiquities Apostolicae. The apostle of Yahushua, Peter, wasn't in Rome, but another was in Rome. That was Simon Magnus. He was the one who was in Rome. No, our apostle, the apostle of Yahushua, he was actually having a sandwich in Kent. He was. He was in... (laughs) No, he was in Britain. I'm serious, guys. Come on, let's... I'm sorry. I'm trying really to give you real history, but I'm having a bit of fun about it because that's just the way I am. But you can check. John always does, especially when he first started coming to Torah to the tribes. He'd be like, who is this guy? I'm going to check him out. And he'd go back and check it all out. He'd be like, my goodness. It really does say that. So anyway, I mean, I tell you, you go and do your due diligence and we'll all talk later. Sandwich Ken, check it out. Anyway, we're going to go to Glastonbury in a minute and we are not going to meet Johnny Depp, let me tell you. Because, you know, Glastonbury, if you're not familiar with Glastonbury today, is a place of debauchery. Of course, that's where the big music festival is. It is a place of debauchery. And, of course, it's so obvious then of why it would be because at one time it was a Kadosh place. We'll talk about Glastonbury in a minute. But um, no, we're not going to meet Johnny Depp in Glastonbury. In fact, we are going to meet Yahushua. So let's continue on a little further. Because the apostle of Yahushua, Peter, he was not in Rome. That was Simon Magnus. We know that that was another. The Peter of Rome was named Simon too, but it was Simon Magnus of Acts chapter 8. He was, in fact, the leading conspirator in the plot to assassinate and take over the apostolate, the establishment. He wanted, of course, to establish a Gentile pagan church in Rome, and from him was birthed the assassin squads, which, of course, was established by none other but Judas Sicari. Sicari, of course, with the short Roman dagger that was hidden in the cloak for the assassin squads. And, of course, Judas was one of those main assassin squads, Zelotos, at the time of Yahushua. We have to understand the context of what was going on politically with the assassin squads in Yahushua's times. Let's continue on. Romans chapter 15, verse 27. That wasn't a gang sign. It sounded and looked like it. There was nothing at all untoward going on there. It has pleased them truly, and their debtors they are. For if the nations have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to attend to them in material things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed for them this fruit, I will, t- will, will return through you to Sephard, of course, Spain. And I am sure that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of of the brachot of the gospel of Messiah. 
Now, in past studies, if you've been with us for a while, I have taught that Joseph of Arimathea was, in fact, the uncle of the Virgin Mary. He was Yahushua's great uncle, Joseph of Arimathea. But the word Arimathea comes from Ramah or Ramallah. Now, Ramallah, which is the modern-day town today, it was the birthplace, of course, of the prophet Samuel. And it was called, in the Septuagint, it was called Arimathean, Arimathean, which is, of course, Joseph of Arimathea, or Armartha. It's about eight miles due north of Jerusalem on the Jerusalem-Nazareth Road. So when you read the Gospels and you find that Yahusha, his parents had lost him, he was where? Where was he? He was in the temple. Well, how you be like? How did they lose him? Because they were traveling from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, but there was a stopway right there, just eight miles north of Jerusalem. Yahusha would have gone to be with his uncle. And he would have gone and stayed. It wasn't like they were just, oh, they... They had no idea where Yahushua was. Of course not. He was with his guardian, his uncle, of course, Joseph, Joseph of Armatha, Ramallah, at his house. And he would go down, teach at the temple, come back to his father's house. That is how the story goes when you read the Gospels. It wasn't like they were absent-minded parents. They had always, of course, in his young years, had the stewardship and the governorship of his great uncle there, Joseph of Arimathea, because it's about eight miles due north of Jerusalem on that Jerusalem to Nazareth road. But what I didn't get into in those studies was that Joseph of Arimathea was the apostle in Britain. He was the apostle in Britain. Joseph actually ran the tin trade, the tin trade between England and the whole Mediterranean area. He had a great fleet of ships and was the minister of mines for the Roman Empire. This is what the history records record. We have a brother in the seat back there nodding because you've, you've read this and we've spoken about this in past times. This is in the history records. You can look it up. I'll give you some resources afterwards. We'll post it online. Um, the British mines mainly supplied the glorious adornment to Solomon's temple. Of course, this is fascinating because as Yahushua's great uncle, Joseph became Yahushua's guardian by law as next of kin. Because when Mary's husband Joseph died early in Yahushua's life, Joseph of Arimathea took Yahushua with him on his journeys to none other than Glastonbury, England. Glastonbury, England. The place we know now as Avalon. Now, this, of course, takes me back to my English childhood of King Arthur and the Round Table. I mean, where do you think some of these stories, they get caught up in pagan Roman mythology, but you go back to the true historical source, get rid of the pagan origins and all the fairy tale bull, and you end up with some amazing historical truth that through folk tales gets corrupted, and then we just write it off. 
But what we'll find out, this place we know as Avalon, the King Arthur of Avalon, you need to read some of the Reverend Lionel Smithett Lewis's findings because he was actually the vicar of Glastonbury. And I mean, he's got an amazing book that just just goes into this stuff. But this location in Glastonbury is the location of the first Christian church that was built above ground. The Nazarene religion began in Britain within 50 years of Messiah's resurrection. Within 50 years, the Nazarene religion began in England, in Glastonbury, because of the traveling journeys of Shimon Kiefer and the Apostle Paul. Because he's on a mission. He's going to Spain. And right from Spain, you're going to Britain, the people of the covenant. You see, my boyhood King Arthur traditions have it that Arthur was a relative of Joseph of Arimathea and the knights, the knights of Arthur's round table were priests. They were all relatives of Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, when the truth comes out and you start to see the other side of it and the monarchy and the blood and the DNA and the reptilians and all of that corruption and where that seed line goes, you can see why this is truly a fight for truth and righteousness of the gospel in these days and these ages. It's huge. It's huge. Because think about it. The Romans, why were the Romans so just against the British Isles? What did they have? I mean, they were a tolerant people, the Romans. They even tolerated the Jews for quite some time, didn't they? Why is it that they were so intent of putting down what was going on in the British Isles? Think about it in the whole course of history. Because Roman Emperor Claudius, he took up the war against England that Julius Caesar began in 53 before the Common Era. Why do you think the Romans were so intent on subjecting the British under their boot, under their domain, and subjecting the British Isles. Because of this truth, the Romans, they rarely, rarely meddled in their subjects' religious practices. Like I said, even the Jews were tolerated for a long time. Only two religions, two religions, did the might of Rome ever try to eradicate Christianity and its ugly foster mother, Druidism. Those are the only religions that the Roman Empire tried to eradicate. Christianity and Druidism, which now takes me to Wiltshire, to, of course, Stonehenge. I mean, it's just... Because nearly 80 years of war, it couldn't do it. Nearly 80 years they were pounding over there in the British Isles, and they couldn't do it. It's an old fight between twin brothers. The British Isles were promoting the gospel of faith and the great faith, which had been determined to be anathema against the great Caesars. It was the great faith promoted by the British Isles that was against the great Caesars. It was Cardinal Pole, in fact, who reminded the Pope and the Church of Rome at the beginning of Queen Mary's reign 
that Britain was the first country to be converted to Christianity. From the arrival of Brutus in 1103 before the Common Era, even Jeremiah was in Ireland in 583 before the Common Era, the Druid, now, can you say the Ephraim or Hebrew priests there? Because that's what they were. The Druids were priests. They were Hebrew priests. But we know what Ephraim got up to when they started getting into the priestly realm, right? It started to get pretty pagan, right? Bethel, Tan, up in Dan, excuse me. Um, yeah, they were making priests of every... And it's that, that's the Druids. But it was from a Hebrew origin. They were Hebrew priests. The Druids, you see, they were the megalith builders. I mean, you see the stones of Stonehenge. Then you go see the stones in the foundation wall of the um, Roman fortress there, which they call the Western Wall. I mean, how did these stones, these were the megalith builders of prehistory and the endless waves of Celts and Scythians that migrated to the British Isles. We can unearth Britain's hidden history with the first followers of Yahusha and, in fact, Yahusha himself. Because the foundation of the Church of England was built upon the disciples of the Messiah. How far has it gone? How far has it gone? The acceptance of the true Nazarene faith by the British took place under good King Lucius about 170 of the common era. Now, Gideas the Wise, Gideas the Wise, the earliest Christian historian, he lived between 425 and 512 of the common era. He distinctly says that the light of Christ shone here in Britain in the last year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That was in 37 of the common era. There's some great historians, historian E. Raymond Capt and Reverend C. C. Dobson. You should check into some of those writings. I mean, it's, it's just, it just once you start to go down this wormhole, you're not coming out for at least six months. I mean, it's just amazing, is it not? It's, but it's, oh, wow. You're like, there's a whole other section of history that is buried by the Roman Catholic Church because they wanted to have a stranglehold on the identity of the church that was built under the false apostle of Simon Magnus because the true apostle, Shimon Kiefer and Yahushua and his great uncle were actually preaching the covenant to the people that accepted the covenant in Britain and then we see that got buried later in church traditions. But it started off right, and then, of course, we got into the medieval and dark ages, and we never recovered from that in Britain. And now it's a very sad and dark, dark place with only a few saints that are truly pursuing the righteousness of Messiah. Let's go back into our text. That was a little wandering journey, but I think it's worth it. 
If you want to go down into those history annals, it is absolutely fascinating. And again, a lot of resources available for you. Um, Raymond, um, E. Raymond Capt, Reverend C.C. Dobson, and of course the good vicar back there in Glastonbury has got a wealth of information for you as well. Verse 30 of Romans chapter 15. Oh my goodness. Preaching the gospel is such a blessing. Now I beg you, Israelite brothers, for the Savior, Yahushua, Messiah's sake, and for the Father of the Ruach, that you strive together with me in your prayers for Yah, to Yahweh for me, because it's blooming dangerous out there. You have got to watch out for those Zionist conspirators that hate Yahushua, that are going to try and kill you at every turn. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in the Messiah from the house of Judah. You have got to be careful of those Jews that do not believe in the Messiah because they were out to kill Paul. They were out to crush the true gospel message. It is a diabolical conspiracy of the unbelieving Jews to thwart the message and liberation of the scattered tribes of Israel. They don't want 12 tribes returning to the land with those thanksgiving offerings from the nations. They want one tribe subjected to the Babylonian financial system in charge of a Babylonian corrupt Luciferic realm and they want no part of the nations but to put the nations under their fiat currency currency and extortion and this is the problem they wanted to centralize centralize their religious world order in a religio-political state run through a mixture of the Babylonian occult and the Herodian political might and capital. Has anything changed today? Has anything changed today? It's called Zionism. It's called Zionism. Oh, wake up. Wake up, O oh sleepyhead. Wake up, O oh sleepyhead. Awake from your Christian Zionist slumber. Hell is at the gates and you funded its siege ramps. Hell is at the gates and you funded its siege ramps. What is going on with us? I used to call myself a Christian Zionist. Because I lacked the understanding of history. I lacked the understanding of the Talmudic Luciferic conspiracy. That was very real. That you can see Paul is crying out. That I be delivered from the Jews that don't believe in Messiah. Because they are trying to kill him and kill his message of 12 tribes and the sojourner coming back into the land of Yah, not the land of the Babylonian Ashkenazi. And that my terumah, my offering, verse 31, which I have for you, Jerusalem, may be accepted. What is his offering? The Gentiles. That his offering of the Gentiles may be accepted by the Israelite saints because it's about the community. Wake up, Israelite saints. 
because we're going to be bringing a whole lot from the nations coming in and we are going to be working together. People are coming from all kinds of classes, different origins, oranges, origins, coming together and we need to work together as that fruit is brought in. See, I could tie it back. That I may come to you with simcha, with joy by the will of Yahuwah, that you may be refreshed. That you may be refreshed. Now, the Elohim of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Powerful stuff. In fact, but I'm not finished. You think, oh, I was. Because amen in itself Every one of the New Testament books ends with our main, except for three, Acts, James, and 3 John. We already quoted from 3 John because I believe, it's just my belief, I believe that each missing our main in Acts, James, and 3 John, it's like a signpost or a dolmen. You see, when the tribes were migrating from Judea out to the nations, eventually ending up in the Tin Islands, the British Isles, they would construct dolmens. And you can see these dolmens, these stone pillars throughout Europe. Stonehenge is one of those dolmens where the priests, the Hebrew priests of Ephraim, that had mixed up in pagan philosophy and became the Druids, they had constructed those stone dolmens through the southern England. You can see them throughout southern England today. But these armains are like signposts or dolmens because I believe it indicates Yahuwah wants you to understand that certain knowledge has not been known to the world until now. Now is the time. Our calling, our calling is to proclaim around the world as final witnesses before the end of the age. The Malkitzedic message of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 18, Romans chapter 15, the culmination of his letter of all 12 tribes being gathered in to that mountain, that one voice, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and you are going to be offered up brought in by the priests out in the nations, are going to bring in those from the nations, calling you as one thanksgiving offering unto Yahweh. I believe Yahweh purposely excluded from the book of Acts the final 29th chapter in history because that's the history of the true early church until Simon Magnus corrupted it and the Romans came over with his corrupt corrupt conspiracy of that church and try to stampede out what was going on not only in Glastonbury but up there in Kent down there in Kent I should say too this is amazing stuff when you look into the history of what the Romans were doing in the British Isles it truly is it truly is because these are the final days and the message is out the message is out and it's up to the priesthood you who have the responsibility to do the work and proclaim it because you are the people. You are the people. We have much work to do. Amen? There is my amen. Amen. Questions, comments?
Is this on? All right. You know how you were talking about earlier about um, be uh, you know how the disciples were priests, uh, how Paul was a priest, and you know really interesting evidence to that is right be, right before the feast, the covenant feast, you know on Mount, the Mount of Olives. Um, Peter, I think well, I think it was Peter who basically said that he didn't want the Messiah to wash his feet for him, and he didn't understand. And he told him that if I don't wash you, that you will not, that you will by no means see me in the reign of the heaven. You know, basically you will not see, you won't have place with me in, in the reign of the heavens. And he did, at first he didn't understand, and then he told him that you will understand. And what's interesting is that word that it's used in Aramaic is the same word for, um, for a spiritual spiritual cleansing and then all and about a washing as well like a bathing as washing as well like that the priest did the same word that the priest would use when they'd be cleaning themselves so he talks about two different cleaning there though in that same sentence he talks about his the washing of the feet and then also he says but if you don't get bathed by me which i believe is the baptism is like the priestly cleansing of the water and that's the, the thing is when you look at the language you can really track it back, and it has its, its priestly language. But we understand. So I don't understand when people rip out of context Hebrews 8, 4, and say you can't be priests, and Yahushua couldn't be a priest if he was here on earth. They're missing all of the priestly language throughout the New Testament, and the fact that you are a kingdom of priests, and now we can see Paul is ramped up at the end of Romans to really... Bring that home that you are now to go out as those priests and bring in the nations as that special thanksgiving offering of Isaiah 66. Amazing. Good insight. Can I add one more thing to that? Please. There's um, another really interesting evidence connected to that is in in the book of Mark, the Messiah sends out his disciples to anoint the sick and heal them. And it says that, and the sick... And many of the sick were anointed that they and were healed, and then later on, like like right after that, it, it's he is told he tells his disciples to go report to John what he has seen, that the blind see and that, that the lepers are cleansed. You go back to the Old Testament with the priest, the priest would anoint the lepers with oil, and if they were pronounced clean, the lepers were cleansed. Messiah was sending them out to priestly anoint them and mm. actually truly heal them, truly, and not just symbolically heal right. them. Right. So we have we what we have is the ele- elevation. I speak of this oftentimes in denigration, the denigration of the natural and the elevation of the supernatural. Denigration of the animals' sacrifices and the Levitical hierarchy and the elevation of the Zadokite priestly line, which is Malkitzedic. It's supernatural. Denigration and the tearing down and destruction of the earthly temple and the elevation, building up of the priestly temple. You are those living, living stones. And he wants not to cleanse the outside, denigration of the cup, but cleanse the inside, elevation of the cup. That's what it is. Elevation, denigration throughout the scripture. He's moving us out of the natural into the supernatural. But that doesn't mean that we don't dis- we dismiss 
in the natural because we are living in a concrete Hebrew world and Hebrew, Aramaic, concrete language that can help us in our studies. Any other questions, comments? Matthew, do we also see the kol echad, the one accord in Acts chapter 2? The kol echad, the one voice in Acts chapter 2, of course, amazing. And again, what a thrust that is, powerful. There's so much. Thank you. I'm sure you, yes, help us out here um, with the history as well. Well, I, I just a couple of comments. Uh, when you were talking about uh, verse 16, David kept coming back to me about being a Melchizedek priest. And yeah, can you put the mic up? Oh, and eat, uh, the, okay. eat the mic. David, David, I'm sorry. <laughs> David kept coming back to me about being a priest and king. Yes. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David is king and priest. And then you started off on Britain. <laughs> Cut my, my brain. And I, I'm not going to say much. Just, just the fact that history is so screwed up that where they believe that Britain is Ephraim or Ephraim, yeah. that United States is Manasseh. Right. And if we understand that every nation's history has been screwed up with, I mean... And Stephen Collins does an amazing. Um, yeah, um, he does. Stephen so Collins has got a huge, huge int- um, books. Um, I recommend him on the migration of the tribes of, yeah. of Israel. If you want to get into the history, um, Stephen Collins, great, great resource there. Again, with the ones I mentioned, especially um, the old vicar down there in Glastonbury, his great stuff too. But yeah, and you, you've studied a lot yeah. of history. You're a history buff too, and. Uh, and you, you've heard um, what I've spoken about today as well. And, and, and I testify. just wanted to say what, he's, what his history is right on. And that, that's why I love to listen to him so much because I guess from my standpoint, I can confirm anything, yeah. everything he's saying. I'll be so, in Kent on Monday, but I am not having sandwiches. I'm going to have fish and chips. I'm we going want to hear down stories. the chip. Hey. Stories. <laughs> all right. All right. Baruch Hashem, Abba, we thank you, Abba, we thank you that we can be together in community in your word, Abba, I thank you for all of the people out there in community with us, Abba, that we can watch and be together and communicate through this uh, vehicle that is up for a time, for a season, the internet, Abba, Abba, and we pray that the holy saints that are part of our online community would be blessed. Um, I thank all the people um, in in here locally and online for their donations. We're our donation-based ministry, and um, it's been a huge blessing to be able to take that step of faith. And thank you, those of you online that do donate, um, either through the mail or using our website. It's, it's an amazing blessing that enables us to do great things, and we are so thankful. And Abba, I thank you for your people. I thank you, Abba, that you stir them to follow your mitzvot, to give, to offer that teruma, that offering, just as we see in the Torah that we're commanded to do. I thank you, Abba, for those around me that support me. And Abba, I thank you for the worship today and for all of your kedoshim, saints and priests, in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. 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 Stick around.